Hello, everyone. Before we start today's podcast, some exciting news for you. You can experience the Inside Politics podcast live in Dublin on May 16th, when Hugh Linehan, Jennifer Bray and I will be joined by Cliff Young of Ipsos, one of America's top pollsters, to talk about the US election, our own local and European elections, and much more. It's a breakfast event kicking off at 8am in Trinity College. If you'd like to attend, you can get tickets at irishtimes.com forward slash events. That's irishtimes.com forward slash events. I hope we see lots of you there. It's Friday, February the 19th, and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. A week ago, we were joined by Professor Brendan O'Leary to discuss the history of Northern Ireland in light of its impending centenary, along with the recent introduction to the Northern Ireland Protocol and the ongoing debate about the potential reunification of the island of Ireland. This week, we wanted to get some perspectives from the unionist community, not necessarily party political ones, or or even in this instance, ones that absolutely reject any discussion of things like constitutional change, but just to get a sense from people who come from that community to understand what the thinking is about the way things are now and about the future of Northern Ireland in the context of its changing relationship with both Ireland and with the UK. Later on in the podcast, I'm going to be joining writers Jan Carson and Rosemary Jenkinson, but first I'm joined by Sarah Creighton. Sarah is a writer and a lawyer from Belfast. She contributes regularly to a range of publications, including Slugger O'Toole. Sarah, you're very welcome. Hello. Nice to meet you. I'm going to ask you the question which I'm sort of asking everybody on this subject at the moment, Sarah. The centenary officially lands of Northern Ireland in May. What do you think about that? What a question. Um, it's it's a huge thing. The centenary is... Um, I guess it isn't. It's probably surprising to hear this. It is kind of a bit of an odd one, actually, for me as a unionist. So, you know, on the one half, you've got centenary, which is um, the centenary of partition um, and partition um, as a historical event and and everything that came about as a result of that. And, you know, there's looking back on that as a historical moment and what how I think and feel about that now that historical event and obviously you know I don't know how I would have felt a hundred years ago I don't know what I would have done though obviously a lot of members of my family signed the Ulster Covenant um, and felt very strongly about it I don't think there was looking back I haven't found one that didn't in that generation looking back there was a lot of things that happened after Northern Ireland started that I'm not exactly proud of you know um there's a lot of things that happened which um should not have happened i think for for on both sides but particularly as a, as a unionist you have to look back and say there are a lot of things that took place that really should not have happened at all i guess i you know i've said this before in my head when i thought about this event though i've never really thought about it as the centenary of partition for me i've always thought about it as the northern ireland centenary and i do think there's a difference between the two so you know on the one hand you know there's looking back at partition and history and everything that happened but then there's I'm a unionist Northern Ireland is my home I was born in 1987 my unionism does not come from James Craig or Ebra Carson I have very different views on those men you know I you know I'm a unionist because you know I grew up in, in East Belfast in, in the 90s and you know Britain was part of my country and I look towards Britain and Westminster politics and I'm culturally British as well as culturally Irish and Northern Ireland is my home it's a place that um, while I feel very frustrated about it's somewhere I have a lot of pride in it's it's, it's key to my identity and, and you know it's it's part of my home so when I come to the centenary it's that kind of two both of those things are going on where it's about trying to find a way through both of them and, and sometimes you know I need, I need to look you need to look at the history of the thing and maybe be it, take yourself out of it and then there are times when actually, you know, I need to look back at this and say, well, this is about the start of my homeland and the place where I am that's made me who I am today. 
Northern Ireland now is very different from what Northern Ireland was when it was founded 100 years ago. And it was founded um, specifically with a strategy of assuring a, a sort of a lock-solid unionist British-Irish majority in the in the, in the six counties of Ulster. Um, now, that is no longer the case. We could come maybe a little bit later to the question of whether there's a pro-union majority, which I suspect there, 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 there still is for the moment. But there isn't a clear party political pro-unionist majority and there isn't or there's barely um, what was traditionally thought of as a Protestant majority in Northern Ireland. All those numbers are going in a different direction. Presumably that makes for a different way of thinking about the place. It it does. I mean, it, it it's it depends what generation you're from. I mean, I mean, growing up, everybody everybody around me was I was you know I grew up post Good Friday Good Friday Agreement. The story, you know, my story in Northern Ireland is the story of the peace process, and um, it it is a very different place from when, from when my parents were were um, you know growing up, and, and the demographics have changed. But you know, I I think a lot of people, especially my generation, don't even think that way. I don't think you know some people. It's quite a crude sectarian headcount to just be like, well. There's less Protestants now, and there's there's more Catholics now because I mean, you ask some people, they won't even they'll say, "I'm not even Protestant or Catholic." You know, the, the, there's a generation now that that doesn't even think that way. You know, that I've I've two younger half sisters, and I think my dad had to explain to them what a Protestant was at one point. You know, he just they just just had no no way of thinking. So it's it's a it's a very different place. It's a change in place. Um, I think there is a lot. I think the majority of people are pro union in Northern Ireland. Um, and I think that obviously though things are getting much more complicated, and thinking people are thinking about these things very differently and I think that is that is the real change um, from even as 20 years ago people are thinking very differently about these questions um, and I think that it can't it doesn't just come down to your demographics and where you were born anymore I think there's a lot more going on with people now in terms of how they view their identity and and, and what, how they think about these issues. How well served are people in the community from which you come by the pro-union parties in Northern Ireland? I mean, I can only speak for myself. And as I said, uh, I mean, I suppose there's an objective view and then there's my view. You know, I, I, I'm i very cynical about the political parties um, in Northern Ireland. Probably much, I'm pretty cynical about all of them, if I'm honest, to be honest. I, I just have a healthy cynicism of politicians in general. I just think that's a good way to be. Um, but in terms of the pro-union communities, um, I would say no. Now I say that with the caveat that I am I'm middle class and I come from a certain particular background, so I'm given that view, and I I cannot speak for working class communities in Northern Ireland. Um, I think that um a lot of our politicians, particularly like the DUP and the Ulster Unionist Party, I think they have for a long time been very conservative. I think they have wedded themselves to um, and that's also the case for some nationalist parties as well and Republican parties. Um, in some cases, have wedded themselves to conservative economic policies that are in place north and south of Ireland and in Britain as well that have caused quite a lot of damage across communities in Northern Ireland, particularly working class communities. And when we talk about the peace dividend in Northern Ireland, I do not I do not think everybody in Northern Ireland has seen the benefit of that. I think we've got a lot of progress. There's a lot of good things happening. But um, in terms of those political parties, if I think even within my lifetime, like austerity, that has come into Northern Ireland and, and in my day job, I work for housing charity and I see the impact of that every day. You know, I, I, I do not think the people in those parties really do serve us well by wedding themselves to that ideology. I don't think it's because, I don't think it's ended with their unionism. I think it's just because they're conservative. Um, and I think that there are, I think people within the pro-union, unionist, loyalist community, they care about bread and butter issues. They care about, you know, education and the health care, the health service and everything else. And, and that is their priority. And they vote for complicated reasons. And I think if you spoke to most people in Northern Ireland, um, they will tell you that they wake up every day thinking about how they're going to put food on the table and their children and 
do they feel best served for the politicians? I'd say most people would say no. There was a lot of attention paid a couple of weeks ago, I'm sure you noticed it, to a, an article in the Evening Standard by George Osborne, which was really almost laughing, I think, contemptuously at the unionist political parties, the DUP in particular, for what he described as their stupidity in going along with the Tory party, believing Boris Johnson, um, looking for a Brexit which actually undermined their own raison d'etre because it ended up with the Northern Irish Protocol on the border in the Irish Sea. And then finally, you know, to put the cherry on the cake, telling them that people in England don't give a damn about him anyway. Now, of course, there was a very negative reaction to that from, from the DUP in particular, and they were describing him as yesterday's man. But I got the impression that that hurt because there was quite a strong bit of truth in it. I have a very dim view of George Osborne, if I'm honest. Um, he, some of what he said was correct. You know, they they really did put their 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 faith in Boris Johnson, uh, who is an absolute charlatan, and I cannot stand the man. And he, everybody knew, everybody knew that this man was not going to keep his word. He's pegged himself to people who um, really don't care about Northern Ireland. Um, tied himself to English nationalists who really couldn't give a fig. And he's right, you know, if, if Northern Ireland left the Union, you know, would people in Britain really be that concerned about it? I don't think they would be. But I think if you ask most Unionists, they know that. And, uh, you know, there's something quite grating about people, English politicians and people in England in particular being like, oh, you know, nobody cares. And uh, I'm sorry, but nobody in Northern Ireland is looking for validation from England or Britain. We don't care. You know, it's that attitude. You, you know, you, there were documentaries made. I remember watching a while ago about, um, in the 1970s about housing issues in the Shankill. People in the Shankill were like, these English people don't care. They don't know us, you know, and that's always been the way. And I think the thing that irritated me about George Osborne, and I voted Remain, by the way, but, you know, we were saying about back in a Brexit policy. Well, you know, there's, when they've done research about this, you know, a lot of the communities that voted for Brexit are policy, are communities that were affected by austerity in Britain, which George Osborne had a hand in. So part of me kind of thought, well, you know what, George, you know, it's 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 not really your place to get in here. And as much as as, as I, I there were things in that letter that I agreed with, um, I was like, you know, shut up, please. And you know, so but I do I do think his letter, um, people did read that and did pay attention. And I do think that that some of the things that he said did spook people. And I think when the higher those those statements start to go I do think people start to question and think, oh gosh, who else is listening to him? Who else thinks like this? And I think they know a lot of people and I think in in, in England do believe like, do think like that. But where is that going to lead to? Um, I mean, we particularly were saying, you know, about, you know, that the protocols in Economic United Ireland and things like that, you know, who else thinks like that? So I do think letters like that do provoke a lot of thought um, in unionists. And Lord, I, I, I reiterated again, they really honestly don't, they know that, that, that England doesn't care and they don't care either, really. They really don't care. <laughs> How serious is the, you know, the, the problems which we're seeing as a result of the protocol at the moment and the political backlash against that? How significant is that, do you think, politically in Northern Ireland? Um, it's hugely significant. Now, I, I think we need to be careful. You know, there's, there's, I think most people, um, as angry as they are about the protocol, um, I think if there wasn't a pandemic, they would be protesting. I don't think they would be taken to violence. Now, I think there are agitators within Northern Ireland who I think. I think are just keen to agitate and whether they're and want violence or not I don't know some of the rhetoric I think is quite troubling but I think if you talk to um, well any, any of the loyalists that I know and admittedly you know I don't talk to loyalists as much as many uh, other people would but the loyalists I know are, are, are focused on the pandemic and getting through everything they're not talking about violence but they're angry they certainly are angry um, I think the anger around the protocol is significant um, 
I mean, the protocol, I mean, it, it doesn't take Northern Ireland out of the Union. Northern Ireland is still in the Union. Its place in the Union is still there. But it changes the dynamic between Northern Ireland and Britain. Um, it's the biggest change in dynamic for years and years. And this is the centenary year. And people, you know, it's, it orientates Northern Ireland slightly towards the, war, towards the Republic of Ireland. And I think, you know, nationalists and Republicans in private will tell you that that is the case. Um, and unionists and loyalists know it. They know that, that that there's this this change. Now, that's not to say that I agree that getting rid of that we should get rid of the protocol. I get why they're angry. I think the answer is to be pragmatic and try and make it work, try and mitigate it, and and you know try and see the benefits in it. You know, when if we can if we can actually make this work, a un, the unionist in me says, well, they, then you would go to people and say, well, then why would you vote for United Ireland? Sure, this is a great arrangement here. We've got Britain and the EU out of the EU, and but we've also got access to the EU at the same time. But I think. Um, in terms of the anger, I think it shows um, a community that is that is feeling very uncertain at this point in time. And I don't mean that just in terms of the constitutional question, just the past four years really have ground people down. Um, and obviously a lot of unionists voted leave and, you know, they voted leave for various different reasons. Um, and now they're in this position, they feel betrayed, they feel angry. Now, this is just a long, this is another betrayal and a long history of betrayals. Um whether after all this anger comes out and people protest and speak up what what will be the end game of this i don't know um the assembly elections are next year and i think that's where that's where this this is going to be significant because um obviously there's there's going to be this vote um and for a couple like two years time about to consent to the protocol um and the unionists want they want a majority in the assembly to, 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 to overturn the protocol and get rid of it um and the other side want they want a majority as well and now the unionist vote is declining and then you've got the rise of the alliance party and the neithers now which are which are now very popular and it looks it looks at this stage like the unionists won't get a majority um but that that is where this is going to that's where we're going to see the impact of this you know next year when people go to the polling stations are they going to turn up and vote for these unionist parties is this going to motivate people and drive them to the polls um to make them overturn the protocol so so that brings me to the question of what Brendan O'Leary was talking to me about last week which among other things was about his view that um regardless really of whether or not there's say for example a referendum on Irish unity in 5 years or 10 years that um those who are in favor of it need to start preparing for it need to start thinking about it and he actually pointed back at one of the catastrophes of the whole Brexit process was that nobody thought about what happens next um, should the referendum be passed, which, which it was, and that was one of the things that that made some of what happened afterwards so 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 messy and terrible. Um, so I mean, he comes from one perspective, but there are other things going on at the moment. There's the Shared Island Initiative, which has been launched by the uh, by the Taoiseach in Dublin. There's that. There's the broad civic nationalist movement arguing for Irish unity, and there's obviously you know Sinn Fein as always um, pushing a, a republican agenda and looking for a referendum sooner rather than later. And I suppose my question is that in relation to the kind of culture that we just talked about within unionism, is it possible for unionism to engage with with one or any of those kinds of processes? Or is it really difficult to come out from behind the wall and have a conversation? It, it, it is difficult. Um, and I think I often make the distinction between political unionism and civic unionism. So, you know, for Arlene Foster and Steve Aiken to talk to Think32 or to talk to Arden's future, I mean, they would be pillared. It would be, you know, it, it, I suppose it depends on the context in which it took place. But, you know... It, there are bodies that want the United Ireland and I suppose there's a question of as a political leader why are you talking to them 
uh, why are you talking to them instead of promoting the union? So it it is politically difficult for those political leaders to engage in that. And I think it's unionists are really afraid of being used as props. You know, they rock up, talk, talk about these things. And next thing you know, their words, which they say in good faith, they're worried that they're going to be used to, to hinder them or politically attack them. And there's absolutely no doubt in my mind um, that, you know, Arding Foster and Steve Aiken rocking up and talking to these organisations would be used against them to damage them politically. So it, it is difficult for them to do that. Now, if there was a you know, an impartial body that was actually looking to talk about this stuff. So, you know, University College London had a panel of academics that was looking at the mechanics behind the border poll. I went and talked to them. You know, they're they're basically nerds. You know, they're looking at the policy and how this works. You know, if there was a body set up that was going to actually inform the the mechanics of this and they didn't have an agenda, I don't know why, you know, politi- it would be a good idea for political unionists to engage in that. Um, but civic for civic unionists, it's entirely different. You know, civic unionists... Um, they have a lot more freedom. You know, they can go off and talk about these things. You know, so, you know, Mike Nesbitt has talked to Shared Ireland and um, I think even Jeffrey Donaldson, to be fair, talked to Shared Ireland. You know, um, it, 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 it's, I think it's more possible, for, it's possible for them to engage in that conversation. So, you know, if I was considered to be a civic unionist, you know, I, I have no problem talking to um, people about what I want. If, 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 well, if the Royal United was going to happen, what I would like and what I don't want, I have no problem doing that because there's no, I'm an individual, I can do whatever I like. Um, that is absolutely fine. Now, that's not to say that that you know if, if I I think I have to talk about it. You know, I'm not going to talk about United Ireland at the, at the expense of the union. And I think that there is there is that call constantly for unionists to talk in this conversation. Sometimes I wonder. It's like, do you want me to talk about this and not talk about what I actually want? And more than that, you know, do I have to go and talk to you? No, I don't. You know, and and there's an element of this of you should have the wit to know what isn't acceptable. You know, if you ask me now. You know what? What would nationalists and Republicans like to make Northern Ireland a better place? I could tell you now that they want an Irish Language Act. I could tell you, which I agree with. I think they need. I could tell you that they want more respect for Irish identity, though tackling sectarianism and various other policies that come into it. You know, most nationalists and Republicans should know. I think they do know what would be unacceptable unionists. Now, that's not to say that there aren't things that that, that I think they would like to know now, just so they don't they're not hit with it if there was ever a border poll referendum. But there's an element of this where I think you have to go out and fact find. You have to go out and talk to people as well. Um, so I think Senator Mark Daly did a report um, about the United Ireland Diet, which I criticised him for because he didn't really talk to many women. Um, but uh, to be fair to him, you know, he he went out and he fact finded and he talked to, he got people to go out and talk to these groups. And they were anonymous, and they gave these they gave their views on these things. And now some of them were very raw, some of them were very. Um, very transgressive in some cases, but some of them were had very nuances to them, and it was it was you know he was able to go and do that without those groups feeling like they were being used or being or being used as props to prop up another campaign. Because I have you know I have seen it, I have seen people go and talk to some of these groups, um, give their point of view. And the next thing you know, there's somebody online said, "Oh look, even the unionists are talking about United Ireland. Even they know what's going to happen." And you think that's not why those people are talking to you. That's not why they're there. So uh, it's very difficult to have these conversations, and particularly for politicians, it is very difficult. Um, if you're seen to be talking about United Ireland before doing anything about the union, I mean, I mean, that's 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 politically damaging. Civic unionists, you know, they have they can do whatever they like. As far as I'm concerned, you know, you can go off and talk and chat and 
engage in these conversations if you wish. So let me ask you this question, and maybe it does sound a bit like a, a little bit of a, a little bit of a trap. Then, um, and you can push back if you if if you want to on it. But you know, accepting the fact that um, you're you're a pro union person, you believe in the in the maintenance of the of the union, that you have political views about how to improve uh, both the union and the the governance and the and the running of Ireland, Ireland. Accepting all that, I, I, I put a question last week to Brendan O'Leary, which was that, you know, the, the main item on the agenda for all these constitutional discussions that are going on with some of the bodies that you've mentioned, and maybe even in the future, something more structured like, a, you know, constitutional assembly of some sort. The first item on the agenda is uh, about United Ireland is how do we accommodate um, the British Irish identity and unionists within that United Ireland? And in order to have a meaningful conversation about that, those people need to be involved to some extent. So my trap of a question is, if there was a 51% yes in Northern Ireland in five years' time, what kind of a united Ireland would you like to see? Um, well, they have no problem saying that. I mean, if, if there's a vote, if it if it happens, if it I mean, if it happens, it happens, you know. And I've I've absolutely no problem saying what I would like. I mean, I, my you know, one of my I have a lot of respect for the Republic of Ireland. You know, you, you guys are you know we're, we're used to be one country. We're basically cousins. You know, we're family basically. Um, I have a huge problem with the con- with the Republic's conservative econ- economy. Your health service, um, you know, it, you need to have a national health service. You have a very small public sector, very small state. Um, I would, I, I'm not very keen to swap British neoliberalism for Irish neoliberalism. So I would like to burn all that down. <laughs> With respect, that that will be a starting point. I would very much like to get rid of that. Um, you know, statutory sick pay. I would like that. That would be nice. Um, you know, better public housing, social welfare, a national health service, all those things that I would like. But for in terms of sorry, in terms of the unionist identity, you know, I mean, the question has to be asked: Well, what what flag am I going to rally around? Um, what anthem am I going to sing? Um, now, it's a difficult question because I mean, I don't think you should have to change your flag and change your anthem. But what are you going to do about me? Um, but it's going to be a different country. Why yeah. shouldn't we change our flag it, it, and change our anthem? Well, 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 yes, but it, it, is is the republic ready for that conversation? Is the republic ready? You know, is I think it was a. You know, orange man called Choi who writes for Slugger, you know, he wrote an article and he said, you know, United Ireland means Brits in, it doesn't mean Brits out, you know, so what, what is that going to mean? So, you know, those type of things I would like to have, if not, you know, your flag, a, a flag that I could look to and point to and say, that's mine. Not that that's like top of my priority list, but it does, it does mean something to me. You know, it does mean something to have that I can point out and say, well, that's me. What anthem am I going to sing? How am I going to be accommodated? You know, um, is there going to be a constitutional referendum to allow me to vote in your constitutional um, referendums, which I can't do because I'm a British citizen? Um, I would like to know how unionists are going to be protected in law. I would like to know, are we going to be given some sort of special minority status? Um, I would like to know, um, I guess I would like to know that we're going to be listened to because, you know, my my fear is that, you know, you can give legal rights to unionists and you can say, um, you know, you can fly your flag, you can march, you can do all those things, which to be honest, is you know, is a minor thing, you know, the unionist community is very, very nuanced and, and, you know, that's just one element of it. But, you know, if we open our mouths and speak, are you going to actually listen to what we have to say? Because nothing worries me more than the idea of United Ireland and just the unionists will just be stuck up on the north and you are there and we're not going to listen to you. You're, we're not going to have anything to do with you. You know, um, I have friends that joined the British Army. They're probably going to still be in the British Army. When they come back in the British Army, is, is the Taoiseach going to go and, and speak to them? Is that going to be a thing? And as I say, these are all minor things. These are not top of my priority. My priority for United Ireland would be the economics and the health service and all that. But these things will matter. And these things worry me. And even though I am a unionist, which could probably adapt, I think I would probably find it easier than other 
unionists, that's not to say that it wouldn't be difficult, but there are some that would, it, it's a very frightening thing. And I think, I guess one thing that, that, you know, I haven't seen discussed a lot in the conversation about United Ireland is the fact that, you know, for people I know that lived through the troubles, you know, United Ireland is the reason why the bombs went off and the reason why they were shot. Now, you talk to nationalist Republicans, they will tell you that the union is the reason for them, why they went through what they went through. But I'm going to talk about, you know, the community that I grew up in. You know, people will say to me, I know somebody who says, you know, I will never vote for United Ireland because it means they win. So she's, you know, she's never going to vote for United Ireland, but to her, it's a frightening concept. So how is she going to be made to feel safe? How is she going to be made to feel safe and secure in a new Ireland? How does she, how is she going to be made to feel that what she went through, um, isn't going to be I don't want to say isn't going to be replicated that she's not going to, to to be traumatized that she's not going to be upset and terrified by this it's a very frightening thing for some people because of what they have been through for some it, it's not but uh, even if they did go through that but I I know people that 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 have experienced quite a lot and it, it's it's just something they just do not want so how are they going to be made to feel safe and protected and I think above all I would put that at the top because reconciliation is going to have to come with this as well. And reconciliation is going to have to come in any case. But um, that aspect of it, I haven't seen addressed as much. So, yeah. So is Brendan O'Leary right then that, that you know, if, you know, through a process over the next few years, you would, those those questions of identity, um, you know, flags and emblems, they're not unimportant in anthems. There have always been an important part of the of the, of the conflict that went on. Um, uh, protecting people's uh, British identity, respecting it, actually, you know, and legally respecting it and doing things like that. That if those things, if that process of trashing out those things was, was carried out over the next few years, might that help at all in maybe not convincing that person you're talking about, but, you know, allaying their their actual fear to some extent at least i would i would hope so you know i think i think there's some people they're just i think they're just always going to be frightened and scared by it but i I would certainly i think it would certainly allay some other people's fears i think it would certainly in my mind i would know at least they've thought about this at least the least they've they've got or they've got this in mind going forward if they can't deal with it now it's at the back of their minds that they are going to have to deal with this 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 feeling that is out there um so yeah, I, I think it would help. I think it will help in regard. I think it's a conversation needs to happen regardless of what happens with the constitutional question. You know, the the the, the things that have been done and the troubles in that thirty year conflict, they're still there. And until that that is addressed in some way, it's a festering wound, and it's not going to go away. And that's the case whether Northern Ireland stays in the union or it leaves. And I think that that's a huge thing that needs to be addressed. Whatever we vote for, whatever whatever happens in any border poll that if it is ever called, you know, the problems that Northern has are not going to go away. So I think that that needs to be acknowledged as well. I think there's some people that think you take the border away, everything, everyone's just going to clap hands and hug and it's not going to happen. You know, it's just not going to happen. Um, so I think a bit of realism into that conversation would be would be great. But um, it's a conversation I, I'm happy enough for other people to have, you know, chat away. And, you know, as I say, I have no problem saying what I want and don't want. <laughs> Last question. Is this all a very abstract debate or do you think, what, what do you think the chances are of there actually being a border poll called before 2031. It's one of those things where, I mean, I think it's at this point in time, I think it's unlikely, but you don't know what's going to happen. <laughs> you don't know what's going to happen. You know, um, before Brexit, I, 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 I would have been, you know, the idea of United Ireland just would have been ever happened in my lifetime, just would have been bizarre. You know, I just never would have even thought it was a possibility. I still don't think it's a huge possibility, but I think the dynamics have changed. So, you know, I think that um, if you know, if if this this scundered middle ground, as I call them, the very embarrassed sort of neithers that are rising up, you know, if there's any sort of if there's any change in in their voting patterns, if there's any change, and there's a lot of there's a larger vote for the nationalist and Republican parties, um, 
if you know English nationalists in Britain maybe decide that they have had enough, um, and maybe if people across Northern Ireland suddenly decide that they've they've got they've got to the point where they've they really have had enough, um, and it becomes likely that a border poll that a majority would win, you know, a border poll will be called at this point in time. I think we're I feel like we're in a holding pattern, and everybody wants to know. Nobody knows what the future is holds. Nobody's thinking about a border poll that I talk to. Everybody's just talking about the pandemic and their jobs, and I think that is the case for most people. Most people want to talk about northern ireland and get making northern ireland work and i think that that that's what most people want to focus on so this was a long-winded answer the short answer is no but the longer answer is i don't know this is i don't know because it, it i just don't know what's going to happen you know you, you, you don't you still don't know what can happen in the next couple of years and we don't know how the protocol is going to work out and we don't know how brexit is going to work out in the long term and i think until all those issues are resolved. We we will know where we are, and I mean, we could get ten years down the line, and Brexit could we could all be over all this instability and uncertainty, and people might go, ah, eh, actually, you know what, I'm fine with this, and go back to what we were before, um, or it could be disastrous, and you know, everybody I know could suddenly be calling for a border poll. I just don't know. <laughs> I commend your honesty. We need more. I don't knows on this podcast. Listen, Sarah, thanks very much indeed for joining us today. And I'm joined now by Jan Carson and Rosemary Jenkinson. Jan is a writer from Ballymena, and her new book is the short story collection The Last Resort. It's out on April the 1st. It is her sixth book, and her novel The Firestarters won the EU Prize for Literature for Ireland in 2019. Rosemary is a Belfast-born writer. Her last book of short stories was Lifestyle Choices 10 Milligrams, and her new collection is called Marching Season. You are both very welcome. Let me ask you the same question I've been asking everyone, which is about this impending centenary of Northern Ireland. John, what do you feel about this centenary? Um, I guess at the minute, it does fill fill me with a little bit of trepidation, just in terms of I think people need to be quite careful how they approach it. Um, There are so many different versions of the story in the mix. Um, I grew up in Ballymena um, in a Protestant girls grammar school. And so my understanding of Irish history is absolutely null. Um, We didn't get any of it. So everything that I have garnered has been done in the last sort of 20 years of learning myself. And there are a lot of people who are like me who have got um, one very particular slant on on history. Um, So there's still a lot of learning to be done. I think we also have to be really cautious about the fact that, um, you know, Northern Ireland isn't the same as it was even 10 years ago, 20 years ago. There are lots of other voices in the mix as well. So, you know, I am a, I'm a community arts facilitator and I get to work with lots of people who've moved and chosen to live in Northern Ireland. Their understanding of the history is really interesting and they also bring some of their own story with them as well. So I think we've got to be aware of there's a, a plur- plurality of different voices in this story and we need to give them all room to be listened to and heard and considered. Can I follow up with you on that to say that from the perspective of where I'm sitting in Dublin, we're kind of familiar with this concept of grappling with these decade of centenaries as i think it's been it's been framed from from in in dublin running right through from from 1913 to 1923 and some of those centenaries are more 
complicated and trickier to address and more sensitive than, than others. Uh, 1916, which of course is the big centrepiece from a nationalist point of view, seemed to be handled quite well by the government at the time and being, being quite inclusive. And there was a lot of uh, there was a lot of education really about history that perhaps we didn't know ourselves. We're we're here into a trickier period now as we approach the climax of the War of Independence and indeed the Civil War that um, that followed. Do you think, in terms of what you're saying about a very different Northern Ireland, that one could get something out of a centenary like this this year, this summer, that people could actually discover something about their history that that they never knew. Yeah, I mean, we've been going through the decade of centenaries up in the north as well, and I have learned so so much. Um, until very recently, I worked in the Ulster Hall as their community outreach officer, and there are a huge amount of the the different events are tied to the Ulster Hall, so I had to go and learn all the history. Um, and there was so much I didn't know, and it was a great opportunity to go and learn. I also think the arts has done a really wonderful job of creating kind of safe spaces for people to engage with some of these issues. Um, The arts allows you to have opinion and to have different opinions about different things, different experiences. And, you know, there's a safety in going to a play and then being allowed to have your own response to it that is slightly different from a political debate or a historical lecture or something like that. So I'd love to see a huge arts engagement in how we approach these centenaries. The division between politics and culture can be can be blurred sometimes, Jan, but I mean, the question of one's identity and what one feels about one's own family history or regional history or where you come from and that, those are fundamentally, in some ways, there are more cultural questions than political questions in the first place anyway. Right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, one of the things that comes to mind very strongly when we talk about this is, you know, I, I would claim to have a Protestant identity and yet that, I would say there's multiple different Protestantisms within Northern Ireland. And the Protestant identity that I have now isn't the same one that I grew up with. It has morphed and changed and, you know, been influenced by conversations I've had with with um, other writers and people who I've met on this journey, it's been very much influenced of late by conversations with writers from other places across Europe. And I think that's one of the really interesting things in, in terms of, you know, how these other people who are not the binaryisms that were are traditionally associated with sectarian politics and whether and how are they going to engage with the centenary. I mean, they're bringing their own experience of different places to play on the story of Ireland. And we had a wonderful event a few weeks ago where the um, South African born poet Nandi Jola talked about how her experience of apartheid in South Africa really helped her to interpret the story of Northern Ireland. I've had multiple conversations this year with writers from like Belarus and the Balkans and um, all sorts of places, Kashmir and India, where their experience of other conflicts, other difficult situations have something to say about ours. So I would love to see those conversations happen as part of the centenary as well. Uh, Rosemary, I mean, in, in terms of that, that one of the things that strikes me is that um, people working in cultural spaces within Northern Ireland at times are almost defensive is not quite the word, but they have to sort of resist the encroachment of politics at times or or certain types of politics anyway. Or maybe is it would we think of it a different type of politics is what they're what they're trying to a space they're trying to work in? I don't know. I mean, I'm thinking of theatre, and I'm thinking that they welcome divided politics. You know, because there is a total place for doing nationalist plays and doing unionist plays, as well as I mean, we're doing a lot in theatre as well with multicultural 
plays as well. So, I mean, I don't think it has to be avoided. I think it should be confronted. All, all sorts of things like David Ireland's Cypress Avenue. I mean, that's extremely divisive, but that is good. It, we need to confront that in the arts, not actually avoid it and try to think how we can go softly, softly around these things. As long as we uh, include everyone, that's good. Just to, to piggyback off what Rosemary said there, I, I think one of the things that's been a bit troubling in the last wee while is sometimes those ideas of, of unionist or nationalist identity get reduced down to stereotypes. So, you know, when it comes to looking at how something, you know, a traditionally nationalist narrative or a unionist narrative has been, been outworked in our literature, you get these stereotypes of the kind of lowest common denominator kind of characters. Um, I've been looking a lot at the minute at the representation of evangelical Protestantism in our canon of literature. And all you really get is these kind of Paisley hellfire and brimstone characters or women making endless cups of tea and bringing sandwiches out. And there's a lot more nuance to the experience than that. You know, even if you think about the setting, there's a lot of work that's set in urban environments, Belfast, Derry, not an enormous amount of stuff exploring kind of the rural areas or the, you know, the, the big provincial towns that there are in Northern Ireland. So I think sometimes we need to challenge those stereotypes that, that this is a kind of wide range of different experiences rather than just one I mean, it seems to me, I mean, if I have to think of the most uh, the, uh, the most impactful cultural artefact of coming out of Northern Ireland in the last three or four years, it's probably Dairy Girls. Um, and in that, that raises the question of how a kind of, a, I suppose, a sort of a, a understanding of pop culture, recent history, post, post Good Friday Agreement history, and a sense of humour, which is something I kind of associate with Northern Ireland, but seems to kind of be left at the door when we start talking about the politics of it. But it seems to be integral to the the culture of Northern Ireland, if I may describe it as that, Rosemary. Oh, uh, yeah. Well, we are famous for black humour, Hugh, and proud of it as well. Uh, yeah, well, we have to be really, because when you're negotiating those sort of things that could offend people, opinions that could offend, like uh, the famous uh, Lisa McGee blackboard scene in Derry Girls, and and it is about that. Um, you're dealing with offensive material um, and stereotypical as well. So we send up ourselves, and it's very important to be able to take the piss out of ourselves because it takes the heat out of the politics and diffuses a potentially riotous situation, you know, on stage if we're doing that, if it's live, yeah. So there's a lot of reasons for our black humour and it's basically a defence defense mechanism. Um, but also we see the ludicrousness of our politics and our stances, you know, and I mean, it's, it's unfortunate that history has forced us into that position of uh, you're either one or the other. So we just have to um, laugh at ourselves. Over the course of the Troubles, and maybe sort of in parallel with the Troubles, maybe caused by the Troubles to some extent, but separate from the actual conflict, there was a sort of a cultural renaissance represented by theatre groups like Field Day, a wide range of of actors, some filmmakers, um, uh, musicians. Culture kind of had a role, very significant role to play over those decades. There was a, I seem to remember a controversy maybe you can correct me if I'm wrong on this, Rosemary, where I think Danny Morrison was involved in it, where there was an implication that 
nationalist had all the culture that it was almost a form of resistance in its own right. Am I getting that wrong? As I, I'm not certainly arguing that, but has that formed part of the dynamic uh, over the last few decades? Well, even Protestants think themselves that they haven't been great on the cultural front and provided enough culture, write, writers or, or anything, even though they have. But there is a perception as well that if you take the nationalist Catholic, it would fit into much more of an all Ireland view of what Irishness is, we sort of don't fit into the mould of that Irishness. And I wonder if that is another reason why we don't get our work on quite such a large, wide scale international stage, if you're a Protestant Unionist writer from that background. I mean, we have bonfires, parades, um, that's from the local community um and of course ulster scots is it's not a language danny morrison i'm sure would say you know and i'd probably agree with him it's more of a dialect so there are those sort of issues with culture and i do think irish nationals probably think they have the best music the trad sessions you know and what's that compared to a parade so i do think there is a a kind of culture war there that has been going on a bit. And of course, the DUP have used it in terms of funding, arts funding for band parades, and Sinn Féin used that for funding their pet projects like the West Belfast Fela. For me and people like me and Jan, that's a terrible cultural war for us because we're not so strongly affiliated with one side or another. And so, you know, we will not be well-funded or feel slightly shunted aside. So that's not so good for us. What, what, what do you think about that, that, Jan? I mean, I'd have to say myself, I, I know that I, I feel in my gut that I kind of, I know the the Brian Friels and the Seamus Heaney's and all those kinds of things that, that, that came out of Northern Ireland. But I'm deeply uncomfortable at any suggestion that somehow Irish nationalism, and particularly Irish nationalism from within the from within Northern Ireland, within the six counties, is somehow more creative or more artistic or or, or something of that sort. But there's a sort of invisibleness, which I think Rosemary touched on a little bit there, because of people not knowing where people are coming from. Are they Irish? Are they British? Are they Northern Irish? Are they all three or are they uh, none of the above? It's a very, very complicated question. I've written at length long papers on this. I think there's lots of different issues. Um, one is a visibility issue. So, you know, we all grew up reading mostly Catholic narratives and Catholic experiences of, of the North because that's what was on the curriculum. And if you don't see your story reflected, it's really hard to see it of any worth. Um, I think the second thing is a theological thing. I grew up very, very deep in the Presbyterian church and there's absolutely no respect or support for the arts within a community like that, which is not to say that there weren't people creating. I think sometimes when we don't hear voices, we think the voices aren't there. Um, I'm writing about this at the minute, that the voices were there. They just you know, it's it's hard to push through a community that says what you do is sinful or wrong to make your voice heard. So I think there's that. And as the influence of the church loses hold, we're seeing a lot more Protestant voices come to the surface. I also think there's something about the international narrative. So um, particularly in America, um, when I go to America, 
people aren't familiar with the unionist narrative at all. What's been presented in Hollywood, what's been presented on TV and books has been mostly a kind of nationalist narrative about Ireland. And that's what they want. So I've had people walk out of readings in America when I say I'm a Protestant. They don't want to hear that side of the narrative. Um, so it's a very complicated question. I, I don't think it is that there's been an imbalance in that they're, you know, Protestants are less artistic than, than Catholics or anything like that. I think it's possibly just a confidence thing and a, um, an exposure thing as well. And we're beginning to see the change in that. There, there are more than one sort of divisions in society and, you know, class and privilege and deprivation in many ways are, are more entrenched divisions than some of the some of the traditional sectarian ones uh rosemary i I do wonder when i hear all all this talk about the others being the largest growing electoral group and that is that just not lots of people who enjoy watching rory McIlroy on the television and cut their privet hedges and go to the garden center the famed north down garden center goers uh that uh that perhaps we're paying too much attention to them because they're always going to be a minority of the population aren't they <laughs> are they? Certainly the more the younger generation is less uh, preoccupied by the binary. I was also going to say upon that point that we were just talking about, the reasons why the Protestant voice hasn't come out is also because loyalists tend to self-police because they're worried about, well, their experiences are always of being portrayed as thugs or wastrels. Because I've been writing a play about bonfire collectors, and they're always so worried about how they're going to be perceived. And that's the whole thing. It's fear of perception, uh, of negative perception, has also held back a lot of certainly loyalist working class voices in society here. Perceived as what? Perceived as being potentially violent or or what yeah yeah potentially violent and also yeah i'm i'm thinking specifically because i was writing this play about bonfire so i'm thinking they would be perceived as drinkers there are fights maybe there or drug addicts drug dealing within the lawyer's community and they don't want to be perceived as that and no matter whether you're you may be writing about the truth they're worried that it's always the same no positive view of their community is being put out there artistically. That's what they feel. And is, is part of that, just to come back to the, the class thing briefly, uh, Jan, one of the things that strikes me is when you look at working class communities, urban working class communities in Northern Ireland, they are intensely self-conscious in a way that probably their equivalents aren't in exactly the, the, the same way around the world. But the way in which they're treated in the media and thought of is, is not that dissimilar to the way that... Um, working class white Trump voters in the United States or working class Brexit voters in Northern England are kind of depicted in, in elite media circles as well with a certain amount of disdain. Yeah, I mean, someone said to me a wee while ago, um, you know, Dan, stop and think of the portrayals that we have of Protestant working class culture. Can you think of anything that's not a pastiche or, you know, where we're not laughing at them? And it, it is actually quite difficult to think of, you know, straight up, you know, coming at that the culture with complete objectivity and saying, right, I'm I'm going to be okay looking for stuff in this culture that I'd like to validate as well as that which we want to critique. We usually approach it with a kind of critical head already on. And I think we need more of the, the, those artists who are going to um 
almost like leave their preconceptions at the door and say, you know, can we do an exploration of working class Protestant culture that isn't going to make them look silly or pick up on those things that that turn them into stereotypes? Um, there's a lot more going on. Um, like I grew up on in, you know, very middle class neighbourhood, but since moving to East Belfast and getting to work in community groups here, there's so much of the culture that I think is actually amazing and really interesting and not what I was expecting. It didn't get my heckles up. It didn't make me angry. I can understand why it needs to be validated. And I want to see more of that coming out in the literature as well, but also that we reserve the right to critique some of the stuff that is very problematic and really, really difficult as well. The backdrop to the reason why we're having this conversation is partly because of this impending centenary, partly because of the political changes which have occurred over the last few months, really, with the Britain's departure from, from the European Union, the setting up of the Northern Ireland Protocol, and it seems an increased push or an impetus for um, some sort of forward movement being sought by the nationalist parties in Northern Ireland towards some form of referendum on Irish unity. I'm not going to drag you into a political debate on those questions, but clearly they influence the space in which you live and work and make your art, Rosemary, don't they? Yeah. Um, I mean, it's good for us artistically because it puts us in a centre of attention in, in terms of the media. So, yeah, we don't know if that the protocol will result in, well, push quicker and Brexit, of course, the referendum, how quickly that will come. And obviously that gives us huge writing material, to stuff to tackle in the future. So there's going to be debates by writers definitely over the next few years. So it's going to be very interesting for us creatively. And does there, Jan, a number of people have said that Scotland is important to know this and that if something significant in terms of constitutional change happened in Scotland, which is certainly not out of the question over the next few years, that that would, I'm not sure what it would do. I don't know if it would dislocate the sense of the very specific sense of Northern Ireland's British identity. Uh, how would that affect the sort of the people who you know? Um, well, I, I definitely grew up with a really strong affinity to Scotland. If you go back a number of years, that's where my ancestors came from. And there's a Scottish twang in my voice. That's what I normally get mistaken for. So, yeah, and I, I have always found, aside from the Irish writing community, the Scottish writing community would be the one that, that I would feel closest to. Um, Scottish writers are asking a lot of the same questions that we're asking. They're thinking about the complexity of identity. They're thinking about, um, you know, what it means to be part of the United Kingdom or not part of the United Kingdom. That They understand, you know, what, what resonates with us over here. So, yeah, I, I do think it would, it, it, it would cause us to rethink our identity a little. Um, I guess for me, you know, as we move into what is probably going to be, you know, five, ten, I don't know how many years of furious talk about what happens before we get to actually doing anything, because that's what happens in this neck of the woods. I am really, really, I'm really, really insistent that people talk to us and not just talk about us. And I think that for us as writers, that that means that we need to be recording all the different voices 
that, you know, if people are going to talk to people from Northern Ireland, they're not just getting one of these stereotypes that we've talked about. They're getting a wide range of experiences from rural areas, from conservative areas, from working class areas, from the new voices that are coming in of, you know, folks who've made Northern Ireland their home. Um, from, you know, we mentioned dairy girls earlier. We need to talk to more teenagers and young people. We're making choices about their future and they need to have a say in the conversation. So I think that falls upon us as artists to make sure all of the voices are in the mix. Do you agree with that, Rosemary? And if if so, in order to achieve it, does that mean some kind of, I don't know, series of festivals, events, some form of kind of throwing some, you know, throwing a bit of fertilizer in the garden to kind of make the flowers grow a bit? I do agree with that. Yes, it's not just are you unionist or are you for United Ireland in that way and nationalists. So we do need to look at everybody's voice in this. It's the old sentimentalities uh, always come in about what's going to happen in the future, whether we're Irish or British. But it'll be interesting to see if we think with our mind as well as our hearts, I think, about the future. Yeah, I mean, I do think a lot about a referendum all the time. And I think I'd be sad to lose the NHS because that's a cultural ideal, really, an idealistic vision of what healthcare for all looks like. And I mean, we can talk vaguely, but I'm interested in concrete details as an art. I mean, as a writer, I don't just want to waffle on about what it might look like. I just want to go into the nitty gritty of what we could be and what we will culturally be and how we will fit into Ireland. I think that's the whole thing. A last thought from you, Jan, on on this. I mean, the referendum is a fraught subject and we're not, we're not going to get into the pros and cons of it. But is there any possibility that even the kind of discussion around it just makes all, all other kinds of discourse more difficult because it forces people into a binary? Yeah, and I, I'm terrified of binary-isms. I just I think they have been the death of Northern Ireland is that we love... Uh, two sides to everything. I mean, there's literally nothing that we can't turn into a us or them kind of debates. Um, everything from like football to, you know, what colour of socks you wear kind of thing. Um, and I think that binaryisms are, they're really divisive. They, they don't, you know, as artists, we love those kind of liminal in between spaces where you get to be lots of things at once and play with the lines and push the boundaries and all, all those kind of things. And a, a kind of us versus them to be, I, I just, I don't think it serves anybody very well. Um, and we know how to do this. Like artists, th- this is our bread and butter working in these kind of gray area spaces. So I'm in, in a weird way, I have trepidation about what comes next, but I'm also excited for us as artists moving forward. Like this is our area of expertise working in the weird spaces where there's lots of kind of awkward conversations going on. And, you know, we don't want to reduce things to black or white issues. So it could be a lot of fun creatively in the next wee while. And I say that kind of like, you know, very, very like hesitantly. Um, you need to work out what you mean by fun. But creatively, I think this is going to be quite an interesting period. Um, I, I said a wee while ago in another interview, I don't think there's going to be anywhere more interesting to be working as an artist in Europe in the next few years as Northern Ireland. I think we could all agree we're, we're all in favour of, of fun. I, I, on that optimistic note, we'll leave it. Thanks for that, uh, John and Rosemary. 
And that's it for today. Thanks to our producer, Jennifer Ryan. If you'd like to get in touch with us, do drop us a line at politicspodcast at irishtimes.com. And we are always very delighted to hear your thoughts. But until the next time, thanks very much indeed for listening. Mm-hmm.